0: We see death coming into our midst like black smoke, a plague which cuts off the young, a rootless phantom which has no mercy or fair countenance. It is seething, terrible, wherever it may come, a head that gives pain and causes a loud cry, a burden carried under the arms, a painful angry knob, a lump, It is an ugly eruption that comes with unseemly haste, the early ornament of a black death.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi there and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name is Angus. Minette Walters is perhaps the first crime author to win major awards for each of her first three novels, The Ice House, The Sculptress and The Scold's Bridal. This includes two awards from the UK Crime Writers Association and the Edgar Allan Poe Award from the Mystery Writers of America. Manette's first five books have been adapted for television, and all up, she has sold over 25 million copies of her novels. I believe that's just a slightly larger figure than the population of Australia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Australia, for buying my books. (laughs) (laughs) One for every citizen.
1: Um, In 2007, Manette published her 14th book, a thriller novel called The Chameleon's Shadow. It would be her last full-length novel for a decade. But in 2017, Manette returned to the shelves with a new historical fiction series based in 14th century feudal England, just as a mysterious and devastating disease that turns the blood of its victims black begins to ravage the country. While Minette has now moved away from the crime genre she made her name in, her latest novels, The Last Hours and The Turn of Midnight, definitely have a far higher body count than any of her previous books. Minette, it's fantastic to have you here. Thank you for joining us.
0: Angus, it's great to be here.
1: So let me just apologise quickly. I do have a bit of a head cold. I mean, I guess it's an appropriate interview to have a head cold in. So,
0: <laughs> Have you got the head cold? Or I have do. I got No, me. I'm not apologizing for you. I think I've got a bit of one as oh, well. Oh, great. Hopefully so we'll we don't be, end up in a plague pit. We'll make sound nasal <laughs> together. Yeah. Yes, we'll end up in a plague pit together, Angus. Great.
1: What a romantic yes. end. Yes. Um, okay, so before we get into all of that plague stuff, I wanted to ask you about some of the things that happened as you were on your way to becoming one of the world's most successful crime novelists. So is it true that... We have the Brothers Grimm to thank for your career in
0: crime. You do, you know, and I was asked by somebody else today, what was my favourite book as a child? And I said, Grimm's fairy stories. Um, I loved them because they both terrified me but satisfied me. And the terror came from the darkness because they are very dark, some of Grimm's fairy stories. But they, they always had satisfying endings. So wicked stepmothers always got their comeuppance and bad kings got theirs. So I think that was clearly a very early indication that I had a liking both for the dark side and probably for justice as well.
1: Yes, they're certainly darker than the Disney iterations, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Did you have a favourite Brothers Grimm story?
0: Um, Oh, gosh. Well, I I really did like them all. I think, uh, you know, um, Sleeping Beauty... No, not Sleeping Beauty. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Mm. That, if you read it, you know, in the original, that is very, very dark and far darker than, as you say, Disney's version of it. And... uh, I was very glad that the wicked stepmother got her comeuppance in that story. From Brothers Grimm to Later On In Your Life, I was
1: reading that you used to edit romantic novellas for the Women's Weekly Library. It just sounded like an extremely challenging job given the subject matter and the rules that you had to abide by in terms of what you stripped out. How did you manage to, you know, edit and write these novellas with no naughty bits, yes. no strong <laughs> drink, not even a kiss till the
0: last page? I no. was like, how the hell do you write a romance novel with none of this? I know. It's the, the extraordinary thing is you truly were not allowed to have the couple kissing. Uh, kissing was all they could do. I mean, forget anything else, touching further. Um <laughs> All that totally forbidden. So all that you could have was a kiss on the last page. Well, this was the trouble. So as an editor and I edited hospital romances, I could not get decent manuscripts because they were 30,000 words long. So we're not talking short stories. We are talking. We used to call them novelettes. And uh, I'd read 300 manuscripts a month, but I could only ever be sure that four would be worth publishing. And I needed eight per month. And we made a fortune, you know. We used to prop up all the other magazines in IPC with our little novelettes because people adored them. Right, so how do you do it? Well, I wrote a prototype to show people how to write a romance. And it basically was the fact that you needed a plot. You couldn't assume that just by putting two people together to have an interminably long conversation, that that somehow constituted an exciting, readable, gripping romance. So I suggested they have a plot with the romance as a subplot. And a colleague of mine read mine, read the prototype, and he said, honestly, you should publish this. It's so much better than anything else that you're publishing. So I actually did go to my overall publisher because, uh, you know, we, we all had to report up and uh, showed it to him, didn't tell him I'd written it. I said, do you think this is the sort of thing we should be publishing And he read it and he said, good Lord, yes, he said. Where did you find this person? Who is it? I said, well, that is the problem. It is me. (laughs) And he then allowed, he said I could write them as long as I passed them through his office, because I was the commissioning editor as well as the every other sort of editor. So I ended up writing 38 of them, all under pseudonyms. But it was such excellent training, because it meant I was writing, but I was also editing. So I was an editor and a writer. And uh, my colleagues used to edit mine, and I edited the manuscripts that came in. But it was extraordinary how then people sort of realised how you could write romances, and so the standard went up. And we we pulled in an enormous amount of money for IPC magazines and supported magazines like Nova, which was a very avant-garde feminist mag in the 70s. And they would never have made they could never have supported themselves. And I was just really pleased about that, that I was supporting this great avant-garde feminist magazine by writing romances.
1: Yeah. So if these romance novelettes were so lucrative, when you struck out to write a book with your name on it, why crime?
0: Well, because I continued I was being commissioned. I left the day job, stopped being an editor. And I was commissioned by other magazines. I was used to write lots of stories. And because I had so many pseudonyms, a magazine could publish two of my stories under different names. And that was great and very, very lucrative, as you say. But then I had children. I got married, had children. And goodness me, the row they made. Nobody told me babies cried as much as these two did. <laughs> and so I just stopped writing. And so this is—I've done this twice in my career. I stopped for the time that it took for my youngest son to get to school age, and when the day came and he was at school, and I literally had a clear day in front of me, I thought, "What? Let—I'm going to try what I'd always wanted to do: write a crime novel." And that's—I started the Ice House that day, and that led to a, a wonderful career and. Uh, crime writing. But then I took another break, and that was through sheer exhaustion, really. And I just needed, I I said, I need a year off. And it stretched a bit. And once I'd put a bit of distance, just as by putting distance between myself and romantic fiction, I turned to crime, just by putting a little bit of distance between myself and crime fiction, I thought to myself, do I want to go back to writing uh, psychological thrillers which I adore writing I have to say or do I want to try something else and I had had this story bubbling away for rather a long time about the Black Death I wanted to write a story of really uh, exploration because it's it's a great adventure story as well as everything else uh, but I, and I wanted to write about the endurance of the human spirit human survival against terrible odds and th- this lent itself and I love historical fiction anyway so I decided I'll try a different genre and try and go for historical fiction
1: Fantastic, so that's kind of forming the story in my mind, there's like three eras of Manette Walters, each sort of split by a hiatus. We had the romantic novelettes, crime, and now historical fiction, which began when you sort of took a stroll through the area in which you live. Can
0: you tell me about that? Yes. And it was um, when we bought our house in Dorset, my husband and I, and one of the first things we were told was that there was a plague pit on our land because a part of our land it is surrounds a 12th century church which is the only building left from sort of way back and uh, and
1: the play pit is like a mass
0: grave essentially it's a right? mass grave and it's somewhere in the mounds so there are mounds all around the church which are the, delineate where the medieval settlement was. And the plague pit is somewhere under those bounds. But it's a very historic site, so it's a she- become a scheduled monument. So no one's allowed to dig on it or anything. We can't even put up fences or anything like that uh, because you cannot disturb the ground. But I have dogs and so I often walk around that field and over the mounds and it's really difficult to walk on history and be so aware that that's what you're doing and know that that little settlement, which you can still see the remains of, um, that Everybody died within probably three weeks of the pestilence entering England because it came in about four miles as the crow flies from where we live. So it must have been one of the first villages to just die out completely. And there are no uh, names, no names were recorded. There there was no one left to make the record. And so I, I became so aware that these poor people had died unknown, unloved, unremembered, forgotten. And I suppose in a sort of romantic way, I rather wanted to try and give them names, but I wanted them to survive. So I wrote The Last Hours as a record of unknown people, but these will survive. What would it have been like to die of the Black Death? Oh, it, was, it really was a hideous death. Um, for the ghoulish, your ghoulish listeners, you can actually look up on the internet and see photographs of modern-day sufferers of the bubonic plague, because it still exists. In parts of America, it's carried by squirrels, fleas on squirrels. And in parts of Africa, it still recurs. And the National Geographic have got a site on on the internet, where they show pictures and talk about it, you know. But it's no longer a killer in the sense that antibiotics cures it quite easily. But of course, pre-antibiotics, you didn't have a hope. But what you do see are pictures of the buboes which came on the neck, under the arms, in the groin. And the those first, and this is also described, you know, by the modern-day sufferers, you terrible itching from flea bites. And then within a day or so, the buboes start to grow. And they were hideous. They grew to the size of apples. Huge, huge buboes. And then maybe the next day, you'd develop them elsewhere. They always seem to have come in the lymph nodes. And uh, finally, you'd develop boils all over your chest and your your blood would turn black. So you'd have a black arm, for example, which is why it was called the Black Death. And uh, then you died. It was a very, very painful death. Very painful.
1: Yes, I'm going to stop complaining about my head cold. Um, (laughs) um, So you've actually said that to write these books, as part of your research, you consulted the testimonies of Holocaust survivors. How were they useful to you?
0: Well, I suppose what it was is I I was... Trying to put myself into the position, in The Turn of Midnight, which is the second one, the sequel, um, in The Turn of Midnight, Thaddeus, who's the sort of main male protagonist, he goes to a domain where... Out of 600 people, only 120 have survived. So virtually uh, everybody has lost their families. Very few whole families have survived. And I thought, how do you understand the anguish of people who've literally watched their families die in great pain? And the, it seemed to me the obvious thing was to read the testament testimonies of Holocaust survivors, because that, of course, is what happened to them. They were the only people left out of their entire family, and it's humbling to read those testimonies because the the pain they feel, and also they. Don't know why they were left alive, why they survived. And I wanted to get all those feelings into the few who survive and the anguish they felt at watching their, their families, particularly their children, die. Mm. Yeah,
1: and it was just kind of luck of the draw if your immune system, you know, could fend this thing off. I mean, the death toll was just extraordinary. I was reading that I think it took the entire world 200 years to bounce back to what the population was before this pandemic, the Black Death. Absolutely. Just extraordinary.
0: Well, if you think that in Europe, they reckon 200 million people died in two years. And that's the thing you have to remember. This was so fast. And in uh, the British Isles... They reckon 50% of the population died in two years because that's the length of time it took to get from Dorset right up to the tip of Scotland, top of Scotland, and over to Ireland and cover the whole of Ireland. So absolutely catastrophic. But it does have, as all great disasters do, it did have a silver lining. And that was that with so many of the serfs dead, because they couldn't flee from it, they had to stand and confront it, because they were bound by oath to stay on their lord's land. And if they tried to abscond, that was a death sentence. So very much like slavery in in Southern America, exactly the same situation. And... um, So you have to understand that because the serfs were tied to the land and they were tied to the land by virtue of the fact that they'd given oaths to their lord to remain on the land, um, that meant that, that that was the highest death rate in that population, in the serf population, was the highest death rate. So in many cases, every serf honour domain died. And there was nobody left to work the land. And so the irony of it all was that once the pestilence passed, lords had to start paying people to come and work their land. And it was absolutely the end of serfdom. And it was the beginning of sort of progressive labour movements. I mean, obviously, it took a long time. But the mere fact that a man could be paid for his work instead of, as a slave, giving his work in return for just a strip of land to feed his family. Um, that was revolutionary. Yeah, well, you
1: really get a sense from reading, mm. you know, even in the first few pages of the last hours, how horrible this system was for so many yeah. people. And, yeah. it, and it seems, you know, you've spoken about your uh, the sort of central male character, but the other central character is, of course, Lady Anne. And she seems... Even from the first few pages, so compassionate and full of logic, which is a rarity, it seems among the upper classes, most of who seem to be whipping serfs for no reason and getting drunk, priests included. So,
0: <laughs> oh, I think priests often got drunk. Yeah.
1: So you said that Lady Anne wasn't based on any particular historical figure,
0: but is there a chance someone like her could have existed in 14th century England? Well, I'm I'm very certain somebody like her could have existed because in the 12th century you had Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was an amazing queen, who was... um, she could men gave her gave her their respect they followed her without question she was very very good at if you like manipulating men and getting them to admire her very intelligent woman and she ruled very well and so clearly an educated woman who was in a position of power could function extremely well and as i say she was 12th century but the, the best records to look for are the ones of wills made during the period of the Black Death, because their wills were made. And East Anglia, which is East England, there are quite a few records there of uh, women who were the, if you like, they were daughters. They were the only members left in the family. So fathers and brothers died and mothers. And the daughter was left to inherit a business. And it could be a simple business like sort of wood cutting, um, or it could be a more, um, you know, sort of skilled one like ale making. And there's many records where women took on these businesses and made a success of them. And so I, if you like, always saying is that when Lady Anne's husband dies, she takes on his business. And she makes a success of it, is effectively what we're looking at. But I think what I really did with with Lady Anne, because she um, she spends her first sort of 14 years or so in a convent after her parents die... And she goes into a convent where she's taught. And it was, I think it would have been a St. Clair convent. So St. Clair was exactly like St. Francis of Assisi, St. Clair of Assisi. And they both followed the teachings of Christ. So they embraced poverty and helped the poor. They were very humble people. So gave up everything they had in order to help the poor. And that is her ethos. She's very, very compassionate, but she also believes in education because she's received an education. So I think one of the main themes through the book is that education does empower. So she is empowered by her education, having been taught to read and write by the nuns. She in turn passes that gift to the people in her domain. And it was very important, I felt, that she should work very quietly doing that for 10 years at least, before the pestilence comes, because she needs to have their trust at the point that she tells them, I am going to shut my husband out of this domain. You're gonna come inside the moat, we're gonna burn the bridge, he can't come across they would only have done that if they trusted her and actually if they didn't want to be caught on the same side of the motors they're very unpleasant lord <laughs> yes yeah. yeah so you know in a sense and she so she really understands the importance of education passes it on most importantly to Thaddeus who then becomes her absolute supporter yeah.
1: Yes, and for all of these beliefs in education and embracing the poor and all of that, she is branded
0: a heretic. Oh, yeah, so, well, she is a heretic, yes. yes. well,
1: <laughs> I mean, was the initial sort of reaction of England when the Black Death entered, could you sum it up as this is God's punishment and we're all screwed?
0: Well, you see, that's the interesting thing. I mean, yes, but you see, if you think it's a punishment by God and you, you're told by the church... You know, you must make confession every day and accept uh, absolution and you must lead good and wonderful lives. I think because you're right to say that logic during that period wasn't very, very common. You believed what the church told you. I mean, you really did. Even the lords believed what the church told them. And you didn't, people didn't have any education. And it's very difficult to apply analytical or logical thinking to anything if you have never read anything different. So you're being preached at all the time, but you've never read anything scurrilous, if you like, that says don't listen to those priests. And so it takes someone with a a very free-thinking mind, which Lady Anne has, and which she passes on to Thaddeus, that type of education question what you're told. Don't just accept what you're told, question it. So in that sense, they are quite advanced. And um, I think the, uh, uh, their approach to everything is that what they can see tells them everything. So if you watch, look, observe all the time. You must take what your eye tells you. That will be the truth. Whereas if you just listen to what people keep saying to you, particularly people in power, you know, that isn't necessarily the truth if it disagrees with what your eye is telling you. And I think that's the kind of logic they both pursue. And uh, in terms of the Quarantining idea she, All she's doing is um, Reversing what she's been doing In the hospital So she has them build, They they build a hospital Only, you know, tiny I mean, it's going to be a wattle and daub hut But she insists on treating the sick In the hospital Rather than leaving sick people To pass their germs Like your head cold, Angus Hopefully not to <laughs> exactly. you Exactly <laughs> uh, Pass their germs to other people She quarantines them inside the, um, inside the hospital. So, you know, the, the, worst, the, the not, you know, worst diseases in those days were things like the flux. That was diarrhea, I mean, bad water, that kind of thing. Well, that passed around very, very quickly in a community if people weren't segregated. And so she uses the same logic when it comes to the plague. Instead of, uh, as it were, she quarantines the well and keeps the sick out and that was heresy because the priests had said you must be good and to be good you must welcome everybody you must give all beggars charity all this all that I mean there were great rules on how you should behave and it was thoroughly heretical to say the church is completely wrong we are not going to welcome beggars into our community we are going to shut them out which is what she does. And the only way to survive. yeah, Precisely, because they don't catch the pestilence.
1: A lot of people have been asking you to sort of reflect on the differences between writing historical fiction and crime, but you seem more predisposed to write about the similarities. So what similarities are there between these two genres that you've
0: written? Well, from the author's perspective, you have to bring many of the same skills to both genres. And so in order to write crime genre, you do have to know about crime, criminal techniques, you know, police procedures, all these kinds of things. So that requires that sort of research. And you need to then, in order to construct a story, sort of decide on a murder. But then you've got to analyse it as you as the story progresses, if you're going to reach a conclusion at the end, in other words, reveal the murderer. And history is very similar. I mean, you've got to understand the period and then you've got to kind of create characters and set out to analyse how will those people, how can they most effectively make this period come to life? But, you know, if I look at my... Romances, and then I look at my criminals, crime stories, and then I look at these two historical novels. Um, To me, the same thing applies to all of them, and at least I hope it does. And people have written to tell me it does, and that is that I think they are all page-turners. So even with my little romantic novelettes, I used to get letters saying, oh, I couldn't put that down, and they only had to read 30,000 words. And I've had so many um, people write to say they just could not put the last hours down. And when was the turn of midnight coming out? Uh, So hopefully now everyone will be pleased um, that they've got the whole story now. Yeah, you've yeah. also
1: said that out of any book that you've written, you got the biggest response from fans from the last hours. I do. Why yes. do you think that was?
0: Well, I think it's because, in many ways, um, people find it much easier, in a way, that they to engage with history in the sense that they understand it themselves, the historical setting and the historical background, and so which is much harder with crime, people don't necessarily want to admit that they can identify with Hannibal Lecter, for example. You know, they don't want to write and say, oh, that was brilliant. I really identified with Hannibal Lecter. But here they really want to write and say, I could picture the Landscape. I really could picture Lady Anne. I love the fact that blah, blah, blah. And I think people who enjoy historical fiction are also much more keen to engage because they feel they have enough knowledge to engage with me. Whereas readers of crime fiction perhaps don't feel they have the same knowledge about crime as crime writers have. And therefore, it's harder for them to engage. And if that's the reason, I don't know. But it is absolutely amazing. I've had the most wonderful reception for it. And it's really pleased me, really has. As a last question, Minette, I read that when you're not writing these fabulous
1: page-turning novels, you love a bit of DIY, like carpentry, plumbing, (laughs) decorating. That's a bit of a break, I guess, from the cerebral demands of writing. So I'm just curious to know, is there a project that you threw yourself into after completing uh, The Turn of Midnight?
0: Well, funnily enough, (laughs) you, you say that, yeah, I wanted a nice brand new kitchen. And I really was going to do it all myself. But the trouble is our kitchen is very, very big. And one of my sons was down staying with his family. And he went, Mother, you can't do that all yourself. I said, yes, but I enjoy it. (laughs) Anyway, he did persuade me to call in a firm. But I I was in there helping, you know, because I couldn't bear to watch them, particularly when they were pulling down some wallpaper on the walls. I say, oh, come on, do let me have a go. I love pulling off wallpaper. (laughs) (laughs) So I became bosom buddies with the blokes who did my Kitchen. They, they did a fantastic job and they loved me because I kept helping them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. A woman of many talents. That's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Manette, for coming in. Um, I've absolutely loved reading The Last Hours and can't wait to read The Turn of Midnight. That's thank you. I guess it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. The Last Hours and the Turn of Midnight by Minette Walters are published by Allen and Unwin. They're available from all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Thanks for listening.